the seat in front of you. And so if you're using uh, that version, we're going to be on page 401, 401, Nehemiah chapter 6. Well, as we've been moving through the book of Nehemiah, we've seen uh, this man who's uh, a cupbearer to the king, one who is established uh, in, in power and influence, uh, but also one who is far from his home. Uh, Nehemiah is one who is uh, from Israel and exiled out uh, from that place, hears of the state of the city, uh, that Jerusalem's walls have been uh, torn down and burned, that uh, this, the city at large is in spiritual and physical disrepair. And so as we've been walking through this book, we've seen uh, Nehemiah cry out before God, lament uh, that the state, and then respond to it. That he would ask for the king to commission him to go and repair these walls. Uh, that as they have uh, come together, that the, the city, the people of Israel uh, have responded in suit. That they have uh, met the work that God has called them with eagerness and longing to, uh, to be about it. That it's not just a physical work, but there's also a, a spiritual one uh, that we see this work going and going and going. And we also see that it's with great opposition. And that's where we pick up this morning in Nehemiah chapter 6. As we are here nearing the end of the completion of the wall, we actually see it completed here in this chapter. Uh, We see that the opposition does not let up. And so let's read together uh, just 19 verses, Nehemiah chapter 6, verses uh, 1 through 19. You can follow along with me. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies had heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, Although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plains of Onom. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations. And Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. You have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now, come and let us take counsel together. Then I said to him, I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking, Their hands will drop from the work, and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are going to kill you by night. But I said, such, Should such a man as I run away? And I said, What man as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in, but I understood and saw that God had not sent him. He had pronounced a prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him 
And for this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God. According to these things that they did and also the prophetess, Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished. On the 25th day of the month of Elul, in 52 days, and when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah. And his son, Jehonan, had taken the daughters of Meshulam and the daughter of Berechiah, his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to make You would think that here in in chapter 6, as the wall is being completed, uh, that there would be more joy, that there would be more excitement. But what we actually see is that in a book full of opposition, the opposition continues. That the enemy continues to oppose the work that, that Nehemiah is doing, ultimately opposing the work that God is doing in this city. He does it in many ways, many strategies. And Nehemiah remains faithful, not because Nehemiah is a great leader, not because Nehemiah is a great Christian, right? Uh, But Nehemiah serves a faithful God. And so as we look into this text, we see that our enemy is crafty and wicked, but that our God is good and faithful. And we see it really in in three different ways, three different strategies that the enemy tries to bring out here in in chapter 6. Uh, to harm the work, to harm Nehemiah, and, and we just cry out with them in facing opposition and turmoil and pain. How long, O oh Lord? That the enemy opposes, but, but Christ will be victorious. So let's look at these three different ways that the enemy opposes the work, opposes God, and, and how we can respond to them. In the first nine uh, verses, we, we see that the enemy seeks to eliminate. Namely, that there is the threat of harm and accusation that Sanballat and, and Tobiah and Geshem uh, and the rest of the enemies, they hear that the, the wall is close. They, they hear that, that breaches have been filled. Everything is in place except for the doors. That The gates are, are there, but they're just open and, and still, uh, still vulnerable. And so they have this last-ditch effort. We're going to try to eliminate Nehemiah. So they, they seek to him and, and they say, hey, come out and meet us here in this, this plain. Uh, it's about seven miles away from Jerusalem. They're going to, to call him out of this place. Nehemiah sees through it, likely by the provision of God. And, and he says in verse 2, but they intended to do me harm. That there is a threat of, of harm and accusation. That they're calling him to be drawn away from the work. To, to be aside and, and come out. Be distracted for a moment to do this thing. And it says that they intended to harm him, that they likely were were going to kill Nehemiah out there in the plains. Nehemiah sees through it and recognizes that he instead is called to be there in the, the presence and work of God. And this is how the enemy operates. 
with the threat of, of harm and accusation. Uh, not only that, hey, you need to move away from the work, come and, and seek counsel with us. But then when it says that he didn't answer them for four times on the fifth time, he sent and he, he sends out with an open letter. Uh, this is where we get our word for open letter. You know, you hear, oh, someone posted an open letter. What does that mean? What they post on their blog or website or with whatever uh, newspaper, that this idea here. But this is a, a literal open letter. Usually a scroll would come and uh, be rolled up and then sealed with a, a stamp so that you know that when you received it, if you were the one that broke this, the scroll, no one else had read that letter uh, until it had received to you. Sanballat sends this letter with no, no seal. No scroll, uh, nothing to, to bind it. The expectation uh, was one of disrespect, of, hey, anyone and everyone should read this as it comes. Uh, this is public knowledge. And so Nehemiah receives this open letter and says, hey, not only are you not coming to meet us, clearly you're about to elect yourself king. You're about to establish this new city and this new nation. You're going to rebel against the kingdom. And the king's going to hear about it. Just, just wait and tell Artaxerxes, hear what you are doing. The fear of repercussions of his uh, own reputation, his own calling, his, his own sake, and only, uh, not only that, but also his own life. What moves us away from the presence and work of God? What, what distractions come to us and, and say, move away from what you are doing? Come out of that place and come to me and talk. Hey, your reputation is at risk. Your life is at risk. Come and resolve this thing. We often think that it would be uh, this, this mighty distraction, this uh, literal enemy, those who, who come and it, they wear a patch on their shirt that says, uh, official persecutor of the church. Uh, that's not really how it often goes. Instead, C.S. Lewis records in, in his uh, book, Screwtape Letters, uh, as one senior demon writing to a, a lesser demon, he, he says that the Christian described the enemy as one without whom nothing is strong. And nothing is very strong. Strong enough to steal away a man's best years, not in sweet sins, but in a dreary flickering of the mind. Over it knows not what, and it knows not why. It does not matter how small the sins are, Provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. That our distraction to the presence and work of God is often not what comes in as this grandiose calling to go and murder someone or to go and move into abhorrent sin to rob a bank. That's not often the temptation that we're under. That is, that's something we can still move through. The grace and forgiveness that is in Christ is still sufficient. More often than not, though, distraction is not these giant sins, but the small ones. Not, not these giant temptations, but the small ones. That we think at times, if I can keep my nose in my work, that leisure is where sin happens. And that our work becomes an idol itself. Or if we think the workplace is where we are, we are guilty and we need to find Sabbath rest, right? That we need to rest in God. And so we carve out Sundays as this time to pour in. And we elevate one and put down another. 
that we become passionate about different things and, and different policies and, and politics and whatever it might be here in the world, not realizing that what we're apathetic to is actually drawing us away. Or perhaps we think we, that we're going to move away from the world and not be concerned with those worldly things, but instead seek to be faithful in the small. This hemming and hawing, pushing and, and pulling is the tension in which we find ourselves distracted from the presence and work of God. It's not that God doesn't care about our work or doesn't care about our leisure, that he doesn't care about our passions or doesn't care about our apathy, but that Christ desires to be the Lord in our lives. And so in threat of harm and accusation, our reliance is not on ourself to maintain our holiness, but on the person of Christ to sustain us. That we would rely on God in the good work. That the discouragement around him and around Nehemiah expected their hands to drop. That the fear of the threat, the report to the king, expected them to shut down everything that they were doing. What does he say instead there in verse 9? They wanted to frighten us, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. Weakness is where God shows himself strong. Remember the words of of Paul in 1 Corinthians? As as he responds to the weakness, as he recites his reliance on God, he says that your strength is perfected in my weakness. That weakness is where God shows himself strong as the history of Israel, as God has called Abraham to be the father of of the nations. That God called Moses, one who, who couldn't speak, to be his mouthpiece before Israel, that God called Gideon and his armies and slowly weaned them down so that they wouldn't think that they won the battle by their own strength, that God would get the glory in the life of David, not the the king whose head was a foot taller than everyone else, but the little ruddy shepherd who sought after the heart of God, that God shows his weakness, shows his strength rather in our weakness. How much do we see this in the person of that we would rely on God and his good work and the threat of harm and accusation. The second way we, we see the enemy shift, Nehemiah doesn't respond. They say, hey, come out, come out, come out. Listen, you're, we're going to accuse you. We're going to malign you. We're going to say that you're rebelling. And Nehemiah stays faithful to, to God and the good work. And so they, they move and they shift to discredit him. In verses 10 through 14, it says that he, he goes into who he thinks is a, a friend. He goes into the house of, of Shemaiah. And, and Shemaiah has come and says, hey, I have a word from God. You're not going to go out to the plains. That's great. But you need to go into the temple. Listen, they're coming into the city. The gates aren't up yet. You need to go and hide. You need to go to safety. They said this word is from God. We, let's go in there. Let's lock the doors. My response, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? That here the, the enemy is discrediting through false prophecy, through false holiness. They're saying, here is the voice of God. You need to go into the temple and be safe. But Nehemiah knows, uh, as we see in 1 Kings 8 to 27, that it's not the location of the temple, but it's the holiness of the person of God. That, that Nehemiah is, is rightly weary of presuming God's holiness. That he thinks, yeah, I can go in there, I can hide. In fact, I'll, I'll go into the, the holy of holies. I'll go behind the veil. Surely they won't find me there. 
that it's safe to presume of God's holiness. After all, this prophet has told me, God wants you to go into the temple. God wants you to go where he has said not to go. And, and so we're, we're faced with this question. How do we discern the voice of God? How, how do we know what God has said when he is apparently saying two different things? How many people today have we, have we heard say, God told me blank. God told me blank. Vernon Howell in the uh, early 1990s was told by God uh, that he was the second coming of Christ. So he uh, got his family together, got some other families together, and they built a, a compound. They began to intermarry and, and looked to, to Vernon as the second coming. Vernon said, Vernon's not a great name, and so he, he wanted to rebrand himself. He said, I'm in the line of King David. David works. I'm in the line of King Cyrus. Koresh works. And David Koresh and his branch Davidians camped at Waco, and on April 19, 1993, 79 branch Davidians uh, burned to death in their compound. God told me, blank. So how do we discern the voice of the Lord? I think there are a few ways. The very first one is to say, what has he said? God will not contradict himself. God's word does not contradict itself. And so Nehemiah knew what God had said about the temple and about himself, that he was not a priest, he was not the high priest, and that he had no business going to the temple. So because God had not said that, or what he had said contradicted what he had already said, he knew that that was not true. The second question is to say, who does it benefit? God is not going to speak in ways that benefit our kingdom, our esteem, or our prosperity apart from and detrimental to his kingdom and his will. So we have preachers on, on television that, that say that God wanted them to have a $40 million home or a uh, $50 million jet or, or whatever it is. Who does that benefit? It's not the kingdom of God. And finally, we ask that how is he speaking? How does God confirm his word? He confirms it by his word. He confirms it by his people, by community. He, he confirms it so many different ways and it's not that we presume God's grace as an excuse to sin. Nehemiah understands this and his response is that he would give no cause to accusation. That they wanted him to be afraid. That they wanted him to hide. They wanted him to move into the temple and to sin so that they could give him a bad name and to taunt him. Nehemiah doesn't forget the cost. He doesn't forget the sacrifice of the temple. He wants to instead find himself above reproach. Not sinless, not perfect, but relying on the goodness of God. Relying on the word of God, trusting what God has said. That Nehemiah would not bring reproach on himself in entering the temple or in forsaking his task. The final way that we see the enemy moving against Nehemiah is that the enemy seeks to infiltrate. Again, it's not this ultimate and happy, uh, incredible deliverance. The walls go up and, and the enemy is just destroyed. We, we do see God's victory. We do see his celebration. One, that Israel completed the walls in just 52 days. And that when they did, it says that the, the people, the nations around them, those that had opposed God, that when they see that they have failed, 
It says they were afraid, that they fell greatly in their own esteem because they perceived that the work had been accomplished with the help of God. But then Nehemiah finds himself in an ongoing struggle. It doesn't go away. It doesn't end. It doesn't set aside. What we see as the chapter concludes, Tobiah is still here. He's still working. His presence is is still opposing Nehemiah. It says that he has influence over even some of the nobles. Some of these people that were supposed to be on Nehemiah's side. It says they they spoke of his good deeds. Oh, listen how great Tobiah is. Listen what what he is doing. They reported all all of Nehemiah's words to Tobiah. This ongoing struggle is that they're diligent in their works, but not in the results. That's how wolves in, in sheep's clothing work, is that they look like sheep. They, they look like those that are supposed to be here. They look like those that are on our side, but when we look inside, the heart isn't there. Those that oppose Christ actively are not simply those outside of the walls, outside of the church, outside of us, but they're often at times from within. And that's the most painful at times is, is thinking that this is safe and seeing that sin still wreaks havoc here. And so Nehemiah is moving through this. And, and I think it's a, a familiar feeling for us that we, we put a, a checkpoint in our head and we think, if I can just get past this day, if I can just get past this thing just over this hill, then it'll be easy, then it'll be good, then it'll be simple in our spiritual lives, in our work, and and whatever it is, and it never seems to end. There's there's always one more thing. There's always just something we didn't see. We finish one thing, and then difficulty just continues. And and that aimlessness is one that we just find as as part of the human existence in in one sense, that we are still in a world that has fallen and and touched by sin, and there is a, a longing that is here that will not end until we rest finally in Christ. And and the recognition of that is not saying that this is good. It's not saying get over it. But it's longing for a home that isn't here. It's longing to be in a kingdom that isn't here. And we look to that with hope. We recognize the struggle. But we also need to see what God is doing. God is working in ways that should encourage us, that give us hope in that struggle, not to to move us out of it entirely, but to give us the strength to endure. That God will give answer, that God has here finished the walls. He's he's turned the threats and and fear-mongering of these enemies over on themselves. These men and women that were constantly trying to make the people of Israel afraid, and now all of a sudden in verse 16, they are afraid that they, their esteem falls greatly in their own eyes because they know that God has, has done this, that God is working here. And that's not the, the end of, of this book. It's not the end of our story. But when an enemy plays both sides, gossip, division, we're called with the words of First Timothy 6 to be alert to be alert of those inside the church and outside of the church, not to lament or to grieve, but to see what God is doing, to see his goodness, to see his work, not to accept his status quo, but to look and work for holiness and good. 
And so what do we do when it's one hill after another, one struggle after another, the ongoing opposition of the enemy? See what God is doing and see who he is doing it with. That we have encouragement in the body of Christ by the saints he has called us to covenant with. Fred Rogers, uh, Mr. Rogers, uh, would, would say uh, that when he was a boy and he would see scary things in the news, his mother would say to him, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. And it's just this mother's wisdom for a boy who's, who's looking at, at scariness at tragedy, at events, at struggles, one after another and after another. And her point is to to look at the good that's happening in it, to to look at the way that God is still advancing his kingdom, to look at those who he has bound us with. That, yes, Nehemiah has, has these men and women that are opposing him, but when you look at the scope of the book, it's really just these same three names over and over and over and over. And then you go back and you look instead at something like chapter 3. And you see name after name after name and group after group after group of those that have committed themselves to the Lord. That you, you see the sons of Hassanah and Zadok and Jehoiada and Viseah and Meshulam and Hanan and Malchijah and Shalom of Azbuk and Bethzer and Kyla, and Hanadad, and you just go on and on and on and on. And you see that God is working. And so when you face opposition, and the enemy is being crafty and seeking to eliminate you, or discredit you, or infiltrate you, or discourage you, saying, look at the next struggle, look at the opposition, look at the harm, look at the pain, look at the suffering, Christ calls us to look to him. He calls us to link arms with those that are doing the work with us. Here in this church and in the kingdom at large, that God is good and faithful. And that in the face of opposition, even as we cry, how long, O Lord, we know that he is not far off. That Christ has come to give answers. That that's our hope, is that we have an enemy that, that is opposing God, but that is already lost. That, that Christ has already won the day. That Christ will return to crush him finally. But in this moment, in this place, in this time, God is calling us to his work and to his presence. Not to be distracted by other things that are around us, other things that would call to us, other things that would take our time and attention. But to instead say, Lord, my work, my leisure, my passions, Lord, they're yours. Because Christ has purchased me with his blood. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are good and faithful. Lord, give us strength in the face of opposition. Lord, give us wisdom, Lord, in our struggle. God, you are good. 
Lord, you are holy. God, and you are working. Lord, let us link arms Lord, with those who are doing the work. Lord, let us seek your face. Let us seek your kingdom. God, we pray these things in the saving name of Jesus Christ, the power of your Holy Spirit. We're going to respond to the word preached by seeing the word. And one way we see the word is through the ordinances, and that is the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. If you haven't received the elements, uh, they're found in the back of the room, a cup and the bread. Uh, you invite just uh, sneak back there and, and get one of those. Um, just reflecting on the portion of God's word we re- considered this morning, that initial charge against Nehemiah turns out to be ironic in the grand scheme of Scripture, that there is a king in Judah... Indeed, we say this morning that a king did arise in Judah, but not Nehemiah. That is the King Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This king gave himself up to his enemies, in fact, to save his enemies. This king was despised, rejected, falsely accused. But for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame. And so we say together, as Christ's body, for those for whom Christ died, that we will not be afraid. We will not be afraid, for Jesus, our Savior, has taken on the record of debt that stood against us. And even in our ongoing struggle, as the trials the Lord allows in our lives, we say that we will not be defeated, for he is our champion. That we stand together as those whom God has forgiven through the blood of our Savior, and through whom God is working by his spirit. And so we declare this as believers in Christ. This is our ongoing profession that we believe in Jesus, that we trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins to pay what we owe, and we trust him for a good standing before God the Father, that we stand not in ourselves, but in Christ's perfect life. This is an ongoing declaration. If you haven't made that declaration for the first time, please consider doing that today. To give your heart and your life to Jesus. If you want to know more about what that means, please come find Paul, find me, find Randall, find Bill, or anybody else here. That's exactly why we're here. But if that is, if that is not you, if you have not placed your trust in Jesus, if you've not declared that trust through baptism, we say, let's hold off on this meal for now. And we hope that one day you will be able to partake with us joyfully. May this time uh, remind you of your need for Christ. May all of us together as, as Christ's people who will partake remember our Savior's love for us. Let's just take one moment to calm our hearts and draw near to him. First Corinthians chapter 11. You'll see those words behind me. Uh, we'll read together uh, the words printed in red. I'll just read the words in white. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a respondent song. Let's stand and sing together the doxology, and Miriam Allen is going to come and lead us. and your kindness towards us, Lord. We ask that you would indeed bless us and keep us, Lord, that you would shine your face upon us and give us peace. Pray these things in Christ's name.